Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our ongoing series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to be in Genesis chapter 29, looking at the unloved wife, Leah. He'll show how this is actually the chiastic center of the Jacob narrative. He'll wrap up this talk by talking about the birth of the sons and the vindication of Leah. As always, we want to thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing the unloved wife, Leah, in Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. And we're finishing up the story of Laban's deception of Jacob by giving him Leah in the place of Rachel. And on page 71, I raised this question I've discussed before, and just for the sake of completeness, to bring it out here, comparisons and contrasts with earlier deceptions. There's a sense in which deception and trickery are a theme not only in the whole Jacob story, but of course they're in the whole book of Genesis. Because Satan starts out by deceiving Eve, and then we've seen trickeries of one sort or another continually happen in this book. And the question in evaluating it is, is a given incident an instance of Satan deceiving those under him? Or is it an instance of the woman responding eye for eye with a deception designed to protect herself or to protect something? And essentially the difference is whether the deception is being perpetrated by an inferior or a superior. That's not a hard and fast rule, but if the person in a position of power is using his position of power to deceive someone that's weak and take advantage of them, that's satanic. But if a person that's in a weak position is engaging in a certain amount of deception to avoid being killed or to protect the life of someone else, that's not satanic, that's righteous. So if the Nazis are deceiving people so they can kill them, that's bad. And if you're deceiving the Nazis so that you can protect people, that's good. It's not really that hard. The question is, in these stories, what's going on? And in there are additional depths. So just to pull it all together again, the incident here where Laban tricks Jacob is too close to chapter 27 where you've got two sons coming before Isaac for there not to be some intended parallels. In other words, we're supposed to think, what's going on here? Is this the same thing? Is God spanking Jacob for doing wrong? Jacob deceived Isaac in the dark. Now Jacob is deceived in the dark. Jacob came and presented himself as Esau and deceived Isaac. Now Leah comes and presents herself as Rachel and deceives Jacob. So Jacob is getting back, pound for pound, what he dished out. Is that what we're supposed to see here? Very often, that's assumed to be the case. I don't think that the formal parallels, however, are supposed to lead us to exactly that conclusion. I think it's more subtle. The formal parallels that I just mentioned, being deceived in the dark, one brother or sister substituting for the other, 
are usually allowed to overwhelm the material contrast and also to overlook some other things in the story. The ruse set up by Rebekah and Jacob was designed to keep God's command and enforce Jacob's contract with Esau, whereas the ruse set up by Laban was designed to break Jacob's contract with him. In other words, Jacob's deception was designed to keep the contract that had been made. This deception is designed to break a contract that had been made. Second of all, Jacob and Rebekah's deception is that of a weaker party in the face of a stronger evil, whereas Laban's deception of Jacob is unquestionably the deception of a stronger party of a weaker. In other words, Laban has all the cards. He can do what he wants. He tricks Jacob. That's clearly wrong. On the other hand, Rebekah and Jacob are in the weak position when they deceive Isaac. Isaac is in the strong position. We can also say Jacob and Rebekah were deceiving Isaac because Isaac had tried to deceive them. Remember we studied this in detail. Isaac intends to bless Esau in the dark where nobody can see it and disobey God. That's not what's happening here. So if anything, Laban is acting like Isaac. Isaac sought to deceive and give the covenant to Esau. Laban succeeds in doing what Isaac failed to do. You could say, well, there's no Rebecca here to warn Jacob and protect him from what's about to happen. Although I don't think that's particularly relevant. For a true parallel, consider that later on Laban will grope in the dark for his gods while being deceived by Rachel. So I would say that the parallels are these. Isaac deceives by sneaking around and intending to bless Esau and give the covenant away. And that's a sinful deception. Jacob and Rebekah deceive, and that's righteous. Now, I think the parallel is Laban deceives, and that's sinful. And later on, Rachel deceives Laban in connection with the gods. And notice the similarities. You see, you have to remember, we're in a tent, it's dark in there, Laban is groping around, feeling around, trying to find his God. That's also parallel to this whole business of groping around in the dark. You want to have a series of groping around in the dark stories. Laban sins here, eye for eye, Laban is dealt with here. Isaac sins here, eye for eye, Isaac is deceived. Isaac deceives, and Isaac is deceived as an answer back. That's how I would put it out, but that doesn't deal with everything. There's still these parallels. And what we said before, Jacob, after receiving the blessing from Isaac, is sort of put in the position where Isaac was. Isaac was in sin, and these deceptions were done to him to make him do right. Jacob is not in sin, but deceptions are done to him to put him into a weak position similar to the one Isaac was in so he can learn how to do right. And it takes him a while to do it. And we won't get through it today, but the birth narrative of these sons is in a very subtle way showing Jacob moving out of a prejudiced situation where he favors one wife and not the other and getting past that. 
It takes 13 years, but he gets past it. So a thousand years from now, people are going to be able to do better than this with this passage than I can do today. And maybe somebody's already done better with it, and I'm just not seeing it. But I think that is how I would set the whole thing up. These deceptions in the dark. And it gets confusing to start thinking about it. But that's the best shot I can make into it. Just remember who is weak and who is strong. Which deceptions are oppressive and which are defensive. And I think you can sort through these things a lot better than some of the commentators have done. Well, finally, that leads to the last comment here. Jacob as Isaac. As Isaac's replacement, Jacob must walk in his shoes. Now he must be deceived in the dark. So he must start off there. But he must work out the consequences of Isaac's sin and be different from Isaac. So that's the best I can do with that. It's always difficult to know how far to psychologize these passages. You could always pull back and say, well, human beings are complicated and all of us have mixed motives and so simultaneously this is righteous and it's also problematic in each one of these situations and just leave it there. But the text itself is doing something by being written this way and that's what I'm trying to deal with. Yeah, in other words, that one of the major themes in Genesis is deception. Satan comes and he's the first Isaac, he's the first Laban, he deceives. And with destructive intent. Laban's intent is not quite destructive, but it is oppressive. Isaac's is destructive. He intends to take the covenant and give it to Esau. Just like Satan intended to take the covenant away from God and give it to sinners. Make sinners and give the covenant to them. Then you have defensive type of deception. The other theme that's in the book as it develops is you're moving from individual patriarchs to a nation. And the dynamics of whether you deal fairly with your sons and equitably has to be worked out. Because it's bad when parents favor one child over another, but it doesn't destroy society when parents do that. But if you have a society where some people are favored and others are not, you can't have a society. So if God wants to grow these people into a nation, he has to work out of them this tendency to favor, favoritism, and work into them a principle of law and equity. Yes, the trick is to see that the themes are repeated and then each time they're different. And what accounts for the differences? What's happening that's new and different this time that's different from what it was before? And we'll get to it in just a minute because we look at Rachel and Leah. Well, they're just like Jacob and Esau, but they're not. Esau is a wicked man. Jacob is a righteous man. Rachel and Leah are not wicked and righteous. They're just two different girls. <laughs> One's preferred and the other's not. And in Genesis, there are all these doubles. There's Abraham and Lot. There's Isaac and Ishmael. Each one of these pairs is different. Yet each one of them is a pair, and there's a dynamic relationship between the pair that's similar to all the other pairs, and yet each one has a different quality to it. So it becomes real interesting to, like you say, to trace these things through and notice how often the same kinds of things come up and yet different each time in what we're being told. Or try to tease out what we're being told, because... <laughs> not always clear, uh huh. Well, yeah, it's a can of worms that's opened up. Yeah. If you say 
it's proper to deceive a tyrant on some occasions. You're going to have somebody that's going to come along and say, I have the right to lie to my parents because they're being tyrannical and telling me I have to come home at 11 o'clock. Somebody's going to misinterpret it. If you preach justification by faith, somebody's going to say, well, I can sin all I want. Paul faced that. I don't think there's any teaching in the Bible that there's not somebody that's going to instantly pervert and humiliate and disgrace that teaching. So if you teach we ought to keep the law of God, somebody's going to run out and be a legalist or shoot an abortion doctor, and then that's going to humiliate the teaching of the Bible. I think it's a theme in Scripture that just as Jesus, the incarnate word, is humiliated, so the teachings of the Bible are constantly humiliated in public. doesn't matter what it is. If you teach the truth, somebody will go out and run that truth into the ground, and it will be humiliated. And God seems to want it that way. Jacques Ellul has a book called The Humiliation of the Word where he discusses this to some extent. That, so, yeah, you're right in the sense that if you teach that deception of a tyrant is proper, especially when you're seeking to do the will of God, and you've got various factors in place here, like Jacob is obeying his mother, he's not in it alone, he's got the specific word of God commanding that he's the one who's supposed to inherit, yet there's going to be somebody who's going to run with that. And so you just have to keep teaching the whole Bible and understand that that'll happen. I'll review it. I'll review because I'm not sure that... See, I don't take this as a prophecy. The elder shall serve the younger. I take it as a command. And so Rebecca is obeying the command of God and Isaac is disobeying the command of God. So this is not decretive will, it's preceptive will. See, the decretive will would be like, I know what you mean, a prophecy, all nations will be discipled. So America will be discipled, therefore we can use any means we please to bring it about. Shoot abortion doctors or whatever. See, that would be an example of what you're talking about. Now, the Bible tells us what to do, and it may mean a lot of humiliating things for a long time before things change. But in this case, the way I understand the text to read there's an actual command that Isaac is disobeying and Rebekah is essentially obeying. The second thing I would say in the narrative is it's not really Jacob who sets up this deception, it's Rebekah who does. So what usually happens in the story is Jacob deceived his dad, but that's not really quite what happened. It's Rebekah who deceived her husband, and it is not just because he was in sin, but seeking to destroy the covenant and disobeying God in the process. That's why it seems to me that it's not so much a gray area. Now, if someone were to prove to me that that statement, the elder shall serve the younger, is a prophecy, it can't be interpreted as a command, then that would pull me back to the position you described earlier. Well, that can't really factor in. It's more that we see that Isaac is going to give this to Esau. That's a sin. We need to stop that sin from happening. But see, my position would be a little bit stronger than that. So. I think that's what's in the background, is that we kind of grow up thinking, well, God made this prophecy, and then they acted to fulfill the prophecy instead of waiting for God to fulfill it. But if it's a command, then they had more of a responsibility. That at least tells you where I'm coming from on this. Okay. Well, when we were laughing last week, was Rachel tied up and gagged in a tent somewhere? Or, I think, you know, Laban is your domineering father. So I think maybe these girls had always grown up cowed by him and doing everything he said. And he said to Rachel, 
you absent yourself, and she did. Again, we're not really given enough information. We just know that she wasn't there making any noise that Jacob could <laughs> interpret as arousing him to believe something's odd going on. Well, that's the confusion here. And what I wanted to do was remind you that what you usually see is Jacob deceives Isaac in the dark. Now Leah deceives Jacob in the dark. Look at that. And I'm saying, no, wait a minute. That's the middle two of a series of four deceptions in the dark, really, that take place. And just linking those two up and trying to run with a bunch of applications is not doing full justice of the passage. It's more complicated than that. Now, I'm going to leave this now. We will have to come back to it again when we get to Laban groping around in the tent looking for his precious gods. But at least that's several chapters off. Let's start at least looking at the sons. This is actually the chiastic center of the Jacob narrative. You may remember it. Jacob narrative starts and it runs all the way down to the middle and it comes back out. Well, this is the middle right here where the sons are born. Getting all these flocks, having all these sons means we're setting up a nation. And Jacob's name is going to be changed from Jacob to Israel, which becomes the nation name. So this whole passage is about the transformation of an individual family situation into a nation situation. And I suggested to you a while back that that's why this brother-brother thing is so important. When brothers fight, the fighting spreads because all their friends take side, and you have rivalry and anarchy. The only way to stop that is to have the enforcement, strict enforcement of just and equitable laws to where you obey the law, you're left alone, you break the law, you're punished, doesn't matter who you're related to. But that's just laughable today. And it's been laughable through most of human society. What the Puritans were trying to do in England was to enforce the law fairly on the aristocrats as well as on the common people. The common person stole... He might have his hand chopped off, be sold into slavery, or even put to death. So if an aristocrat stole, everybody just laughed about it. The aristocrats could break all these laws. And the Puritans came along, well, the reformers first, and then the Puritans later said, no, everybody under the same laws. Oh, you had a civil war over that issue. When America was founded, it was everybody under the same laws, except for black people. Any society can only grow as a society when everybody's treated the same way. And so we're moving into a nation. We start off with brother-brother rivalry. Now we've got a bunch of children. We're going to have more brother-brother rivalry. We're going to have to deal with it. When we got wife rivalry. We're going to have to deal with that. How is all this going to be dealt with? What are principles that come into play now that we are moving into nationhood, into something broader than just a family? Those are questions that come up now. Now these sons are being born. And that's the reason, ladies, why each of these sons is given a big explanation. And we get down to the daughter and it just says she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. <laughs> Nothing big deal is said about it. Well, that's because we're still talking about brother-brother rivalry and fighting. And it's not that the Bible thinks women are second class because we know from lots of other passages how important they are. But this passage is going to focus on sons because everything up to now has been about sons. And in a sense, the seed of the woman is a son, and so sons are the ones who are going to have to work out the kingdom and protect the bride. And Dinah becomes very important later on, and the dynamics of what you do when 
your girls are threatened in a society becomes an issue. A bunch of stories are going to follow now that have to do with what does a nation do, what does a society do when it becomes a whole society and has laws and it has an army. When your girls are threatened, what do you do? Well, you don't do what Simeon and Levi did with into social issues and the very bottom of conceptions dealing with societies and how people work. And, and I know, you know, here we are, a uh, small group of people in the church here, and you think, well, at least it's interesting. And all of us watch the news, and who knows, there might be wisdom for our individual lives to come out of this just learning more about how God does things. But at any rate, we move now into sons by nature and son by miracle, and that's the center of the passage, in a sense, is the birth of Joseph because he's born on the other side of miracle. Joseph is mentioned last, not because he was born last. He's not the youngest son. But he's discussed last because God opens the womb of Rachel as he did with Rebecca and with Sarah, and that means Joseph is the miracle son, and he is the one that on whom attention is going to be focused. And, of course, we know, because we've all read the rest of the Bible, Joseph is the one who goes on carries forward the kingdom into its next phase. The other sons don't. So he's the miracle son. But before he's born, we have sons by nature, I'm calling them, sons born before the resurrection, before a dead womb is resurrected, before a circumcision. Rachel says, God has taken away my reproach. Does anybody remember another passage in the Bible where the word reproach is used? Sarah doesn't use it, and you'll never think of it, and it's not fair for me to ask. It's in Joshua 5 when the people were circumcised, and they say, God has rolled away our reproach. Circumcision removes reproach. It's after Abraham is circumcised that God opens Sarah's womb, and she has children. Maybe Sarah does say it, but I don't think so. But here, it's the same kind of thing. There's a circumcision... Something old goes, resurrection comes, and the son is born on the other side of that. And the son that's born on the other side of circumcision, on the other side of the resurrection of the womb, is the miracle son. And all the other sons are born first, which doesn't make them wicked or evil, but it means in terms of the symbolism of the story, they're not the messianic seed. At least not right now. Judah eventually becomes a messianic seed, but in terms of the book of Genesis, Joseph will be the messianic seed. He'll be the seed of the woman who actually does the things. So we kind of know that, but I wanted to give that little overview. And now for a little bit more of an overview, the structure of the passage doesn't have any neat chiastic structure or anything. Don't seem to be any significant words repeated exactly seven times or twelve times. It's not done that way. See, I don't try to force every passage of the Bible into a chiasm so you can breathe easy. There seem to be six sections here. Yahweh saw that Leah was hated. We have four sons. Verse 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she could not bear children, she throws a fit and gives Billah and she has two sons. In verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped giving birth, she gives Zilpah and has two sons. So we have three paragraphs introduced by someone seeing and acting based on what they see. Then we have mandrakes. Ah, yes, the old mandrake story. What on earth is going on there? 
Then we have two paragraphs that begin with God hearing. Verse 17, God heard, it says here hearkened to, but this hearkened is just a big long form of heard, listened. God heard or hearkened to Leah, and she became pregnant. And then finally we're told that, verse 22, God kept Rachel in mind and God hearkened to her and opened her womb. So that seems to be the structure. One other thing we will notice as we go is that when Leah's first four sons are born, the name Yahweh comes up four times. Yahweh saw Leah was hated. Yahweh has seen my affliction. Yahweh has heard that I am hated. I will give thanks to Yahweh. Then the name Yahweh disappears from the text. It's God sees. God has done justice. God does this. God does that. God hearkens to me. And Yahweh shows up finally way at the end when Joseph was born. May Yahweh add another son to me, Yosef. Rachel says Yahweh. Now, I might as well explain to you in case you don't know. The barking dogs say that this means that there were two different books of Genesis. There was the Yahweh book and the Elohim book. And the Elohim book was written by the Elohists, and the Yahweh book was written by the Yahwists. And they say that these were two different religions, two different theologies in Israel, and then somebody came and they jammed the books together. And the Leah story about these first four sons, they come from a Yahweh tradition, and all the other sons come from an Elohim tradition. And this is called the documentary hypothesis. You read anything by liberals, and they will refer to this. It's insane, but they do. That's not why these names go back and forth here. The reason the names go back and forth is that the name Yahweh is used to emphasize that God is the true husband of these women. And in Leah's case, she has to stop looking to Jacob to be her husband and start looking to Yahweh to be her husband. Oh, Jacob is not going to be good enough to be her husband, and he's not treating her right. But God comes into place of a husband for a woman who's mistreated, even one who's well-treated. None of us is ever good enough to be a father. We always have to give our children so God can be the father. And none of us is good enough to be a husband or anything else. We have to learn to keep our relationship with God first and relationship with people second. And that's what's going on here. Then when we change from the word Yahweh to the word God, God is the father and the one who gives children. And so Yahweh is the husband who loves Leah. God is the father who gives children to those who wouldn't necessarily have them, starting with Rachel. I can't have children. God will give me children through Bilhah. Leah has stopped giving birth, but now God causes her to have more children. So that's why these words are used, and that's something of the flow of the passage. The kind of a husband emphasis and the fatherhood emphasis and the husband emphasis is generally connected to Yahweh. The fatherhood emphasis is generally associated with the word Elohim or God, the creator. Yahweh is the covenant God. We're married to him. Elohim is the creator God, so he's our father. We can start this and then we're going to just stop after the first verse. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, chapter 29, verses 31 to 35, but we'll just deal with 31. 
Now when Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb while Rachel was barren. So Leah became pregnant and bore a son, and she called his name Reuven, see a son. For she said, Indeed Yahweh has seen my affliction. Indeed now my husband will love me. In fact, both of those phrases sound like the name of Reuben. And she became pregnant again and bore a son and said, Indeed, Yahweh has heard that I am hated, so he has given me this one as well. So she called his name Shem Aon, hearing. It was also similar to the word hate. She became pregnant again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be joined to me, for I have borne him three sons. Therefore they called his name Levi, joining. And she became pregnant again and bore a son and said, This time I will give thanks to Yahweh. He's given up on Jacob. Therefore she called his name Yehuda. Praise Yah. Give thanks to Yah. And then she stopped giving birth. So it's unfortunate that the chapters are broken up in such a way that we have to start numbering again here, but that is at least a somewhat of a paragraph break. Just a few comments on verse 31, and then we'll have to take up the children themselves next week. Yahweh saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb while Rachel was barren. There's a real sense in which God is on the side of the poor. Now, some liberal theologians make so much out of this that they go into revolutionary theology and say that if people are poor, God is on their side and they can do anything they want. Well, the problem with that is they leave the Bible out and they fail to see that the fact that God sides with the poor doesn't mean that everybody is rich is against God or that God is against them. Abraham was rich. Lot was the richest man in the East. These were people favored by God. But the scriptures make it very plain that somebody who is oppressed is somebody that God acts on behalf of. Even if they don't cry to him, even if they don't know who he is, they're still the image of God and God acts to defend them against their oppressors. Now Leah is oppressed. She is rejected. The word translated hate here, we have to be careful with because in our English language, hate is an emotion. And it's also an emotion in the Bible, but it's more than that. And it depends on context whether we're talking about emotion. Verse 30, the preceding verse, tells you he loved Rachel more than Leah. Well, that tells you that he loved Leah. He loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. So when the next verse says that Leah was hated, it doesn't mean that he despised her and hated her guts and couldn't stand to be around her and didn't love her at all. And it doesn't mean loved less. Some translations will give you this. Yahweh saw that Leah was loved less. Hate is not the same thing as love less. Hate in the Bible basically means rejection. And rejection has all kinds of degrees. You can reject somebody partially or totally. You can get estranged from somebody and still have an okay relationship with them, but partially reject them. Leah is rejected. And what sense? Well, I think there's an emotional sense. He doesn't feel as warm to her as he did to Rachel. He'd always been in love with Rachel anyway. And Leah was involved in this betrayal, although probably Jacob couldn't really blame her a whole lot for it because they were doing what their father ordered them to. But she's rejected. But what would be the primary way in which Leah was rejected? 
that's going to bother Leah so that she wants her husband to love her more and that she is in conflict with Rachel. What would be the way in which Leah was rejected? The specific thing. Can you think of what it would be? If you can't, I'll give you a clue. You think that Leah was first wife or second wife? She was second wife. But see, she'd always been the elder girl. And she was married first. But she's been set aside. And she's second wife. Rachel is first wife. Well, this gets all tough here, see. Rachel is first wife. She can't have any children. That makes her very upset. Leah's having all these children. She's second wife. So that's absolutely right. Leah is really going through a hard time having always been the oldest, being married first, and then having all these children, kind of being the patriarch wife here and having the kids and doing all the things that you would expect, and yet being second wife, and basically Rachel being the queen, and Rachel being the one who makes the primary decisions. Leah has to go and ask Rachel for things because she's the number one wife. Exactly how this worked, who knows? Probably was different in every home, but there would be a dynamic. You got two wives, one of them's going to be primo and the other one's going to be secundo. And that's clearly what happened here. So, one of the things that initially takes place here, Jacob didn't love Leah as much as Rachel and he swaps them, but Jacob has to learn that God chooses to despise. God saw, Yahweh saw, that because Leah was being oppressed somehow, he acted on her behalf. That's what it says. It doesn't say Yahweh opened her womb. It doesn't say Leah was rejected. And it came to pass that Yahweh opened her womb. It says because she was rejected, Yahweh opened her womb. God does something to vindicate Leah, to raise her up, to give her something back for something she's lost, and to do something to teach something to Jacob. Again, this business of equity. These two women are different, but they have to be treated equally. Jacob has to learn that. We have to learn equity if we're going to become a nation. It has to start right here. Leah has real faith, as the passage shows. Jacob's rejection of her is somewhat like Isaac's rejection of him. But, of course, Rachel also has real faith. We'll see. Rachel prays to God. Rachel prays a whole long time to God. Rachel gives thanks to God. I've heard sermons that Rachel is a bad person. See, sometimes you hear this. And that's not going to work out here. It's not that Leah is good and Rachel is bad. Leah has got ugly eyes, but she's spiritually good on the inside. Rachel, she's a really foxy-looking chick, but she's just carnal and earthly and materialistic. No, it's just not there. That's good TV show stuff. Maybe makes some good studies someplace, but that's not the way it is here. But she does have faith, and Jacob's rejection of her to some extent doesn't reject her too much. She has one child after another. But there's a slight parallel here, something he has to overcome. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.